Hello and welcome to The G Word. My name is Will Macken. I'm a clinician and researcher at the UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology and Great Ormond Street Hospital, London. My research focuses on genomic medicine, especially in relation to mitochondrial disease. I'm also an early career researcher representative on the Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnership Board, or the GSIP Board. And my role within the GSIP Board focuses on enhancing ECR participation. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nikki Whiffen, who's Associate Professor and Sir Henry Dale Fellow at the University of Oxford. And she's also Quantitative Genomics Representative on the GSIP Board. I'm also joined by Charlotte Durkin, Head of Programme for Molecular and Cellular Medicine at the Medical Research Council. And finally by Jamie Ellingford. Jamie is Lead Genome Data Scientist for Rare Disease at GEL, and he's also a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. Today, we'll be discussing how ECRs navigate and position themselves within the ever-changing field of genomic research. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love your support, so please like, share and rate us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. Before we start, I wonder if we could all introduce ourselves and maybe you could tell us a bit about what drew you into the field of genomics in general. So, Nikki, I wonder, could we start with you? Could you tell us a bit about how you got into genetics? Hi, everyone. My name is Nikki Whiffen. I'm an Associate Professor and Henry Dale Fellow at the Big Data Institute at the University of Oxford. So I've led my team there now for about three years. I moved in the middle of the pandemic and we kind of focus on finding new genetic diagnoses for rare disease patients outside of kind of traditional protein coding regions of the genome. I guess my fascination with genetics started actually when I was quite young. So my cousin actually had a diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which got me fascinated about how he had it, but his brothers didn't. I very much remember being sat in a genetics lecture in my during my undergraduate degree, where the wonderful David Summers gave us an introduction to genetic inheritance. And I was immediately hooked and fascinated. And later, I guess I made the jump into genomics specifically because I think of the um, the potential to make a tangible difference to kind of patients, uh, which I think is great. Fantastic. Uh, how about you, Charlotte? Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. I'm the head of programme for the Molecular and Cellular Medicine Board at the Medical Research Council. At MRC, we fund a range of investigator-led research and large-scale investments related to genomics, so from tools and technology development, research at the molecular and cellular scale, all the way through to genomics at a population level should caveat my input to this is I'm not a genomics researcher, but I've always had an interest in the field. I started my undergraduate shortly after the Human Genome Project concluded and remember there being such a huge excitement at the time about how this is going to revolutionise our understanding of health and disease. And so it's been really interesting to follow progress over the last two decades in genomics. And I'm really excited to see what the progress for the next decade holds because there's so much happening in this area. Totally agree. Thank you, Charlotte. And Jamie? Hi everyone, so I'm Jamie Ellingford. I'm in a really fortunate position that I get to wear two hats and, and have two different roles. So in one part of my life, I act as lead genome data scientist at Genomics England, where we, as a team of genome data scientists and bioinformaticians, help to develop some of the, the software and the pipelines that are applied in genomic healthcare. And the other part of my life is as a senior research fellow at the University of Manchester, where I'm really interested in the functional impact that genetic variation can have, both in terms of how a cell normally functions and how some of those variants can actually lead and, and cause particular types of genetic disorders. So my interest in genetics has actually been quite a, a windy path, really. 
I was absolutely fascinated in the concept of evolution from quite an early age and about how slow change could give rise to these magnificent things if you look across um, different timescales. And kind of round about, I don't know, uh, high school or A-level sort of stage of life, realising that the actual unit of selection there was a gene, was really kind of transformational into the way that I thought about particular aspects of biology. And I've kind of followed that path, did a, um, an undergraduate degree in biology and then a, a master's in kind of translational medicine. And it was there where I really fell into the concept of genomic medicine and how understanding precise differences in someone's genome can be absolutely transformational into the way that they are diagnosed, the way that they're potentially treated and, and managed for the rest of their lives. And so seeing that kind of real life impact for me was an eye-opening experience and is where I followed for the rest of my career, really. Fantastic. Thanks, Jamie. So I think if we start off our conversation with the broader picture in general, um, we know that genomics has really exploded as a branch of science and I suppose also of medicine since sequencing became faster and more affordable. And Jamie, I wonder if you could talk us through how you see genomics in terms of how it's evolved over the last decade or so. Yeah, so I think if you ask a number of people this same question, they'd all come up with different answers. But I'm going to try and distill it to two kind of major developments or, or shifts in the way that we do genomics. So the first has been technological. And so our ability to generate data for genomes, whether that's humans or other species, has absolutely changed over the last couple of decades. And that's largely through the huge investment from industry, from funders to develop different approaches to be able to survey this really special molecule. And so nowadays we exist in an environment where there's lots of different choices to do high throughput sequencing or other types of approaches, which, you know, depending on what you choose, can potentially give you different insights into different biological questions. And so that explosion of technologies that enables us to do high throughput surveillance of a genome is one thing that's really, really changed. And that's changed in kind of in the life cycle of my own career. And what that's come hand in hand with is a, a kind of shift in the bottleneck of where researchers sit. So it's now no longer a requirement that there's a whole army of lab scientists generating genomic data. We can do that in a single experiment. And now a lot of the types of research that I do and other researchers do is heavily reliant upon kind of computational biologists and being able to process that mass of data and, and be able to make sense of it. And so I think from my viewpoint, that's the two major shifts, this kind of development of high throughput sequencing technology and the way that that's changed the requirement for different types of researchers in, in this field. And, and Charlotte, do you think the funding models here have kind of reflected that shift? Yeah, I, th I think with MRC and other public funders, we've put a lot of investment into population level genomic sequencing um, through things like Genomics England, UK Biobank. And following on from Jamie's point, that's given us a huge amount of population level detail, which we now have to analyse, work out what's going on. Some of the other things that I think are in, important in terms of like investments that have been made, specifically in the UK, so where the UK R&D sector has been quite pivotal, uh, things like Health Data Research UK, a very recent kind of collaborative effort, which I think is a good example of a team-based model for 
genomics research is um, COG UK, the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium. So genome sequencing and tracking variants of concern. It was a UK-wide collaborative effort that's had worldwide impact. Um, I think that's quite been a, a fundamental exemplar of what you can do in genomics. I agree with Jamie. One of the things I'd written down around this, this like developments is, is the increasing sophistication of AI and machine learning approaches that to complement traditional experimental approaches. An example that we can think of recently is in structural biology in AlphaFold. So where an, an open access data sharing resource from structural biologists over a number of decades has enabled AlphaFold from DeepMind to predict the structure of proteins based on their sequence. And now we can use this tool to enable prediction of gene variation on, on protein structure. I think that's a really good exemplar of the sophistication of AI and how that can support genomics research. Yeah, it's such a practical example of it as well. I find it so useful just finding a mutation in a patient and you can just pop it into this protein that you now can guess the structure of. It's amazing. And um, Nikki, um, just more generally then in terms of the evolution of genomics, I think my experience has been the UK has actually been at the forefront of changes. Is that what you've seen as well? Uh, yeah, I, I guess a lot of this uh, revolves around the data sets that we've created, I guess. So think about the UK Biobank and how transformative that has been. And it's only more recently than a lot of other companies that countries, sorry, are trying to create similar data sets to kind of add more diversity and power to what UK Biobank has, has kind of paved the way for that. Uh, so UK Biobank along with England. Can you explain a bit what UK Biobank for our kind of um, less experienced listeners? Yeah, definitely. So the UK Biobank is, is a massive cohort of around 500,000 individuals uh, recruited from across the UK. And there's a huge amount of, um, importantly, genomic data on one side, but also linked health data. So these people have done a lot of different questionnaires, looking at their kind of cognition, also about their kind of dietary preferences. There's all sorts of weird questions in there. Um, <laughs> but it's all also linked to hospital record data and different health measurements. So that gives us the power to do really large scale genomic studies uh, with, with health outcome measures. And that's been transformative. And then we're here on the Genomics England podcast. Also, Genomics England has been a data set that's also paved the way doing whole genome sequencing on large cohorts of patients. So we have the population data set in the UK Biobank. We have the, the rare disease and cancer cohort in Genomics England. And these are resources that just haven't until much more recently existed in, in other countries around the world. And these have been supported by that funding landscape from uh, wonderful funders like the MRC, but also government-backed initiatives uh, to, to develop these resources to get them out there, which is really great. And also, I think just to add to that, the, the kind of environment in the UK is a lot about kind of openness and collaborations, particularly within the genomic sphere. And I think that helps us to drive a lot of progress. For sure, that's so important. So that's the kind of broader landscape. But in terms of our own experiences over the last, say, 10 years, how has it been developing as a genomics researcher? Um, if we stayed with you, Nikki, what are the kind of challenges that you've experienced along your career path? Any surprises or changes in your career? I've jumped about a little bit, I guess. I did my PhD in um, common variation in cancer um, in the kind of genome-wide association sphere. I kind of was somewhat unsatisfied with this because we were finding variants that had a very small effect on phenotype. But then I jumped into kind of very, very clinical focused, helping set up a, a diagnostic lab for cardiovascular disease from the Royal Brompton Hospital, and then kind of found my balance somewhere in kind of directly translational rare disease research. So it's been a huge shift for me, but there's also been a huge shift we talked about in terms of the developments in the field 
you basically cannot keep up with the pace of development in genomics and you have to learn that you're never going to read all the papers. <laughs> you get very good at skimming things and trying to get a feel of what's going on and focusing where you think it's, it's, it's most important to focus. But no, it's, it's been a big shift, a lot of development. Yeah, fantastic. Has that been um, a similar experience for you, Jamie? And I, I'm particularly interested with uh, what Nikki mentioned about trying to keep up with developments there, because I often feel like I'm drowning in in articles I'm planning to read and things I'm planning to listen to. It, it, everything seems to move so fast, doesn't it? Yeah, completely agree. And I think you know part of that is the changing landscape of the world. You know, we've we've changed from a predominantly paper-driven journal system where actually you. you wouldn't necessarily read an article unless you received it in the post to something where everything's available online and things are available as preprints as well as um, sometimes intermediates. So a, a, a revised article and then finally as a, as a published article. And so the, the massive information that's out there is staggering. And so trying to keep on top of all of that is immensely challenging. And, you know, I set up kind of weekly reminders about papers to read and you know, I, I don't get emailed about 10 or 20 papers each week. It's it's several hundred. And so, as Nikki said, you know, being able to streamline which information you choose to ingest and the level of detail that you need to get from that is really quite important when, you know, the rest of life catches up, whatever that is, you know, whether that's the meetings you need to be at, the PhDs or the postdocs that you need to supervise, there simply isn't enough time to be able to give justice to all of that information. I guess one of the things that I think in my mind is is quite clear is that as a generation of ECRs, we're faced with this really kind of quite pioneering opportunity. It's the first time that data sets of this type have been available at this scale. And so being able to find niches and ways to work with that data, whilst challenging and requires often the development of new skill sets, so skill sets that you wouldn't have necessarily got from PhD supervisors or from somebody who's supervising a postdoc. It's forced you to be quite independent. And so you get that kind of natural progression into more leadership-focused roles because you're reliant upon you going off your own back and developing those skill sets. But whilst that's been challenging, that has got immense opportunities because some of the insights that have come from say, for example, for Nikki's data, is truly revelational. And we've understood a lot more about parts of genes that until now we haven't been able to ask those questions because we haven't had data from a population, but also from disease cohorts at the same scale. And so, yes, it's challenging. Yes, there's lots of things to do, papers to read, skill sets to develop, but that comes with immense opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. That's such an interesting point about how everything is moving so fast that you need to almost be training yourself to keep up with it. And that does make you, I guess, more independent in that your professor isn't going to probably doesn't know how to use even our studio or something like that. So it's always up to you to keep it moving. One thing that I was conscious of when we were thinking about talking about the last couple of years for early career researchers is, is what's happened with COVID. And have you seen any problems with that, Jamie, or, or, or transitions in, in, in your ways of working? And we might touch on how that affects funding, I guess, as well. So COVID changed life for everyone. Um, in a way, I, I was quite fortunate in that it was a time where I had a small number of people that I was supervising and that kind of exploded a little bit during COVID. But almost all of those were um, computational based. And so we're able to connect to the computing systems that they needed to, you know, particularly through Genomics England, providing a remote desktop environment for you to work in. 
it enabled them to carry on with their work without too much disruption. Of course, you miss the day-to-day interactions, but we were able to keep up with, with everything. I suspect that it impacted many research groups much more than my own because being in the lab became a problem. You know, at, at that point, we were forced into remote working, but we're now faced with the reality where um, a lot of people in the UK are working in a hybrid way. And so I actually think, you know, in terms of the way that the people that I get to look after and people that I work with closely, it actually works really nicely because you get a good balance between having that flexibility to be able to do a lot of your computational work at home without a huge amount of disruption, but also, you know, the ability to have those important interactions in person to cement those relationships, to to perhaps have those more sensitive or more difficult conversations in person rather than through a screen. Um, but what I'd be really interested to hear is kind of, you know, how that's changed the wider landscape of how people are applying for funding. Um, you know, I've always largely just applied for computational based grants anyway, that sometimes require a massive data generation. But a large part of that would be people to actually analyze that data. But how in this hybrid kind of world, the landscape of those grants has actually changed. New word, fundscape. Well, okay. um, what, what do you think, Charlotte? <laughs> I'm going to use that new word. Thanks, Jamie. (laughs) Um, That's a really interesting question. I'm I'm not sure I can answer whether hybrid working and the the move towards more computational based working, and and I mean like the way people work rather than computational science, whether that has changed the grants that people apply for or whether it's just because there's been that massive evolution in, in computational science and the technology development there. Um, like broader impacts related to COVID, we've obviously there's lockdowns, limited access to labs, um, the impact on the cl- like clinically vulnerable. We know this had like a big ability on certain people's ability to be able to perform research, depending on the nature of the research you do. And I think we're yet to see kind of the longer term impacts on that, especially at the very earliest career stage where you've got a fixed term project like a PhD or a postdoc. And we know that's impacted different people in different ways, whether you had caring responsibilities particular chronic health concerns yeah as I said what the nature of your research is and it's going to impact on people's research track record and career development especially at the critical early career stage important to point out that a lot of the funders we, we are committed to ensuring that applicants are not penalized for any disruption to their career and projects as a result of the pandemic and we're working hard to kind of consider the unequal impacts that COVID might have had on you as a level of reassurance on more of like the career development, career track record side. Uh, interesting. One of the things you pointed out there was kind of uh, how COVID is going to change things in the future. So uh, l- let's kind of talk about the future more broadly then. Um, I wonder, Nikki, if you could comment on what you think the big changes are going to be coming on the horizon for genomics. Do you think things like transcriptomics and long reads and that kind of thing are going to be making the big changes? Or is it more about computational things and um, artificial intelligence? or all of the above. All of the above, definitely. Multiomics, definitely. So hitting things not just from short read sequencing, but also using uh, transcriptomics. Translatomics is more of an interest of mine. So looking at translation of RNA into protein, as well as the kind of transcriptomics being profiling DNA into RNA. And definitely more things to do with computational predictions, machine learning and artificial intelligence, definitely. Also, from my perspective, I'm fascinated by the non-coding genomes, the regions of the genome that don't directly encode proteins. And we're developing more and more the tools and the data to be able to probe that on a large scale. And we're making strides into our understanding in terms of genome regulation and the impact of that in disease. And then finally, I'm really, really interested in the kind of moving from 
finding a diagnosis to actually having a therapy. And we're more and more finding the tools in kind of uh, DNA editing and also antisense oligonucleotide therapies and that actually we can start to see a world where a genetic diagnosis can immediately lead to a therapy. And that is super, super exciting in my eyes. Of course. One thing that you mentioned there that comes up a lot in genomics, obviously, is, is you know, proper data science, coding, all that kind of stuff. And if you're an early career researcher listening to this, who's a wet lab scientist or a clinician, but really wants to get more into the, the nitty gritties of geno- genomics and informatics, how, how do you see them as negotiating those changes? Or what, what do you think the best steps are for them to, to add to those skill set? Because as, as Jamie has said earlier, these are the things that often your supervisor can't really help you with because they're changing so quickly. And maybe that's not the environment that they grew up in their career in. I, like many people, started off as a lab-based scientist. I started my PhD in the lab. My day-to-day postdoc supervisor was a bioinformatician. And she said, you'll get along a lot better in this world if you learn how to code. So I actually took three months out of my PhD, sat down with a learn to code in Perl book, uh, because this was a while ago now, uh, and sat there and learned how to code. And then later on in my PhD, my supervisor was like, you've got to go back in the lab. I was like, nope, I'm not interested. (laughs) I'm far better on my computer doing the data analysis side of things, and I never look back. So I'd say, don't be scared. It's easy to pick up. There are so many online tutorials now. You don't have to do a textbook like I did. So many tutorials on how to pick up the basics of R even, and it will dramatically improve your life. It will dramatically improve your understanding of your own data because you'll have the satisfaction of being able to take it from doing the experiments to actually creating the, doing the analysis and creating the figure, which is hugely satisfying. Um, so, yeah, don't be scared. Just, just give it a go, and I'm sure, I'm sure you'll love it. That's great advice. Thanks, Nikki. Jamie, what do you think about kind of um, scanning the horizon and what what are the big changes coming in the future? It feels like in genomics, you always need to be about 10 steps ahead, doesn't it? Indeed, yeah. So before I answer that, I wanted to add a little bit to Nikki's answer because I've got that Pearl textbook on the bookshelf that I'm looking at right (laughs) now. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's worth noting there is, you know, or reinforcing is that this is done independently in most cases. But there are a lot of courses and resources that you can use to, to help and assist that learning. It probably shows our age a little bit. Sorry, Nikki. But, um, you know, the fact that we've learned Perl, which nowadays, if you talk to a, a data scientist in genomics or, or other things, actually probably the go-to language is, is Python. But back when we were learning how to do this, Perl was definitely the hot thing. It was what a lot of ensemble databases were accessed through so ensemble being a, a massive resource and a collection of data resources for the genome of lots of different species and so one of the reasons and the motivations for learning Perl at that time was to be able to access these databases in a, a, a more throughput a more robust way but nowadays people would learn python or r being able to use the command line they're all really important skill sets and importantly they all exist on kind of a, a really large continuum and so there can be people that just pick up basic skills to analyze the data set that's in front of them that they've spent months in the wet lab trying to generate through to people who are proper software engineers and will be writing unit tests to, to test every single line of their code. And I don't think it really matters where you sit on that continuum as long as it works for you and it aligns with kind of your future career progressions and what you want to be in the future, essentially. But in terms of kind of the wider space and where I think genomics is going, so I I completely agree with everything that's been discussed. I, as well, also have a real interest in a non-coding genome. And so at the moment, for people who aren't 
talking about genomes every day is quite a staggering fact that about 98% of our genome is, is non-coding. And currently that isn't kind of routinely looked at for genetic diagnoses. So there are some services that would offer that, but it's not something that we have a comprehensive understanding of how particular changes may cause disease or not. Whereas our understanding of that in the protein coding part of the genome, about the 2% that directly codes protein is much more mature. And so we, we have these sophisticated algorithms like AlphaFold that can predict variants that are going to be particularly damaging. One area that we haven't touched on that I think is immensely exciting for the future is kind of making personalized medicine slightly more personalized. And so at the moment, we think about single changes which cause diseases. And for example, cystic fibrosis, one of the more common genetic conditions. And we can class particular genetic variants into different severities. But some of the things that I'm trying to uncover in my research is how genomic background, how all the other variants that exist in an individual's genome, of which there may be you know, four to five million of them, how they actually influence the way that that particular variant that we focused on, that's the driver of disease, actually expresses itself. So how that changes the severity of disease. And in some cases, in some really extreme cases, how that can decide whether the disease presents or not. And in the future, how that genomic background may influence the types of treatment or management that you actually suggest in the clinic. That for me is a really exciting area that I don't think we have um, a huge amount of knowledge. So there are some areas where understanding kind of interactions between particular genes is, is being established and that has direct roots to the clinic. But I don't think that that understanding is completely comprehensive. That's that's really interesting. I think um, that also underlines how important it is that we continue to have these large data sets that are shared, say, of cystic fibrosis patients, etc. because it's so hard to figure out these changes unless you have um, the right data to start off with, isn't it? Um, and it, just talking in general about the way things are going in genomics, Charlotte, where do you think funders um, want to fit into this? What do you think they're looking at for in you know, tomorrow's application um, for molecular or genomic projects? Everything that Jamie and Nikki have said, I, I, I completely agree with. I'd like to see what the impacts on therapeutics and, and personalized medicine and pharmacogenomics looks like with, with all of the new data that we're getting. Something I'm personally excited about is drilling into the kind of causal impacts of genomic variation. So what is the functional impact? And Jamie mentioned this earlier, how that impacts cell biology, then how it impacts health and disease. There's been such a, an explosion in a number of new technologies around functional genomics to really like drill into non-coding and coding genomic variation and the functional impact it has. And I think we can now ask questions that have been impossible to ask and ask these questions at scale. The other thing I'm really uh, interested in is thinking about where we get our genomic variation data from. So what populations have we studied in the first place? And then who ultimately benefits from the research that we're doing? And there's also enormous potential and need to gain new, new insights into human health by studying the widest possible range of population diversity. Um, and I think some of the efforts that are going on at Genomics England, for example, on the diverse data program, that's a really important effort. And so I'd like to see how that continues to develop. And is that something that reviewers are looking at for in funding applications, um, do you think, Charlotte? Uh, well, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, a new policy that MRC and other funders are adopting at the moment is ensuring that um, diversity is um, considered in, in all funding applications that involve 
animal and human, more predominantly for human um, participants, both in clinical trials, but also its use of human samples and data. So yes, very much we're going in that direction. Nikki, you're nodding there. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I just want to chime back in on that functional genomics piece, actually, because it's something I didn't mention in the exciting things. But actually, we're now making strides such that we're going towards being able to make functional maps of the genome, whereby we're creating every single possible DNA change across a region and looking at the functional impact of that, these so-called kind of atlases of variant effect, and actually being able to look at the function of a variant that we've never even seen before, before we see it, is crucial to be able to interpret that when we do see it, neither at the patient or the population, which I think is, yeah, is a really big area going forwards. Mm. I think that's really going to revolutionise variant interpretation for some genes as well, isn't it? It's just the scale is something that we couldn't have even imagined a few years ago. So it's fantastic. Zooming in a bit more on Genomics England, I suppose, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we've gotten involved and and how we'd find it to be useful. So I first got involved with um, 100,000 Genomes, I suppose, as a clinician recruiting patients. Uh, And then when I was doing some research for Diana Borelli, who's a, a transcriptomics professor in Southampton on a new syndrome, she got me involved in looking at 100,000 genomes for new cases and different phenotypes. And we're still finding new cases of that um, syndrome in 100K. It's just been a fantastic resource. And even today, I just put in some um, requests to contact clinicians for some other new syndromes we found. So uh, I I found it to be super useful. Um, How did you get involved with it, Jamie? And um, what have your experiences been like as a researcher now, as opposed to with your um, kind of lead bioinformatician hat on? Sure. So again, I I think I've I've been in a really fortunate position in that I've been in the right place, in the right seat at the right time. And it happened, you know, when I was doing my, my PhD, I was based at one of the um, genome medicine centers. So this was kind of an academic center that was closely affiliated with a um, an NHS genome uh, diagnostic laboratory. And my supervisor was, was heavily involved in recruitment of individuals to the pilot project for the 100,000 genomes. And so over what has seen the past decade, I've worked very closely with researchers who are part of that pilot analysis group. And we fairly recently, about 18 months ago now, published the findings of that. But since then, it's just kind of accelerated. It was almost Genomics England v0.01. And it's now evolved to this really sophisticated, well-supported system where I think it's it's much easier for researchers to to come on board, to be able to access the data sets they want, to have all of the software, the tools they want to use at, at their fingertips. And so I've, I've seen that ecosystem evolve, not quite from day one, but from quite early on. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm jealous in many ways that, you know, nowadays people can do master's projects over three months and actually really start to dive into the depths of, of the Genomics England data. Whereas um, you know, a decade ago, that had been much more difficult. Um, there was a lot of learnings along the way, certainly from my point of view. Um, but that's, that's how I got involved. And I've never looked back, really. I've just increasingly used that data set in, in my research and now also in my kind of professional life. Mm. Uh, Nikki, what has your experience been like in terms of how you got involved in it and what you do in there now in the research environment? Uh, yeah, I was, I was first involved, actually, when I was doing my postdoc at uh, Imperial College London, um, in kind of cardiovascular disease, uh, and I was involved in the cardiovascular 
group and then when I transitioned to writing my fellowship grant to then set up my own group uh, the data within gel is, is so unique in the size and the fact that it's whole genomes um, that it was crucial to my uh, application and my research because it, it, it's um, crucial to being able to profile the regions of the genome that don't encode proteins. Um, so now it's kind of, I think one of the postdocs in my team is like one of the heaviest users of the research environment. She's off to test everything, um, but we, we use it on a day-to-day -day basis, have so many students kind of signing up and, and giving it a go as well. So yeah, it's really crucial to everything we do. Fantastic. Charlotte, and is it important for you when your team is reviewing fellowship applications that they're making big use of these big data sets like JL and, um, and Biobank, etc., that they've thought of this when they're doing their applications? Yes, when it's relevant to the, the research project, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> we want to see that these um, uh, the UK public sector has put a huge amount of investment and other funders into gel and UK Biobank, for example, we want to see that they're being well used. And also in being used, there's constant improvements and um, questions being asked and then new functionality, new funding, new um, new abilities can be added on to those initiatives. So yes, absolutely. Certainly. From my perspective, what Jamie has said has really chimed with me that it used to be a lot less user friendly, clunky and more likely to crash. But in the, especially in the last two years, I've noticed a massive improvement in the number of tools available, lots of point and click stuff if you're not too good at coding. So I'd really encourage as many clinical researchers who are, maybe are a bit more uh, uncomfortable with data to, to give it a, a go at the moment. It's, it's really been fantastic for me. And then I suppose more broadly in terms of what JL is offering early career researchers, I, I think everything is changing so quickly with genomics. It's both very exciting, but also maybe a little bit intimidating at times. And there's been a lot of uh, moves recently within Genomics England to try to make life easier for early career researchers and to develop more offerings in terms of accessibility and, and training to make ECRs, I suppose, more engaged. And, and that's something from the GSIP side that we're really keen on, on pushing. So this is in its early stages, but we'll have a link in our show notes to the webpage um, where we display all of our researchers for early career researchers. And I also wanted to flag that we'll have an early career researcher session happening at the Genomics England Research Summit, which is coming up soon. We've had lots of different seminars going on over the last year or so, many of which um, are led by early career researchers talking about the amazing research that they've done within the research environment, which has been published in some of the biggest journals in the world. So that, that's a fantastic thing for you to get involved with, but also just listen to because there's so many inspirational projects there that will give you ideas, I think, and give you an idea of the scope of things that can be accomplished within the RE. We've also got lots of blog posts available on the Genomics England blog. Myself and my colleague Leticia, who is a young bioinformatician, are involved in the GSIP board and are happy to be contacted about any queries or suggestions or improvements within 100K. Um, and there's lots of training sessions available, which can be accessed via our website. And there's also a mailing list to sign up to be alerted to these. OK, we'll wrap up there. Thank you to our guests Nikki, Charlotte and Jamie for joining me today as we discussed how ECRs navigate and position themselves within the ever-changing field of genomic research. If you'd like to hear more like this, please subscribe to The G Word on your favourite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Will Macken. This podcast was edited by Mark Kendrick at Ventu Digital and produced by Naima 
Kalachand. <laughs>